Hey everyone, Corey here. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Flirting with Models. If you're enjoying the show, I'd greatly appreciate it if you'd take a moment to rate, review, and most importantly, share with a friend. Word of mouth is how this podcast grows. And if you'd like to learn more about Newfound's platform of return-stacked mutual funds, ETFs, and model portfolios, head over to returnstacked.com. Now on with the show. Sir, are you ready to go? Yeah. All right. Three, two, one. Let's jam. Hello and welcome, everyone. I'm Corey Hofstein, and this is Flirting with Models, the podcast that pulls back the curtain to discover the human factor behind the quantitative strategy. Corey Hofstein is the co-founder and chief investment officer of Newfound Research. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Newfound Research's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Newfound Research. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Newfound Research may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. For more information, visit thinknewfound.com. If you enjoy this podcast, we'd greatly appreciate it if you could leave us a rating or review on your favorite podcast platform. And check out our sponsor. This season, it's, well, it's me. People ask me all the time, Corey, what do you actually do? Well, back in 2008, I co-founded Newfound Research. We're a quantitative investment and research firm dedicated to helping investors proactively navigate the risks of investing through more holistic diversification. Whether through the funds we manage, the exchange-traded products we power, or the total portfolio solutions we construct, like the Structural Alpha Model Portfolio Series, we offer a variety of solutions to financial advisors and institutions. Check us out at www.thinknewfound.com. And now on with the show. In this episode, I speak with Harold Jacobson, an FX volatility trader. There is a lot that makes the FX volatility market unique. For starters, the end users are more focused on hedging cash flow and liquidity than they are wealth. Since the underlying of this market is currency pairs, volatility surface arbitrage conditions become multidimensional. And then there's the global geopolitical event calendar to consider. Did I mention that trades are performed almost exclusively OTC? So even something like price discovery, which we might take for granted on listed exchanges, is non-trivial, especially if you want to backtest a new research idea. This is a fascinating conversation into a fairly niche but important global market. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Harold Jacobson. Harold Jacobson, welcome to the podcast. This is going to be an episode that definitely pushes my boundaries. We're going to be talking about FX, vol markets, something I know little to nothing about other than just speaking to you. So this is going to be a fun and exciting one for me. And I hope, actually know it will be for the listeners as well. So thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be on the show. So I know we originally connected via Twitter. I think you're taking a bit of a Twitter hiatus and you were actually writing on Medium for a while, taking a bit of a hiatus there as well. I don't want to assume that all of the listeners necessarily know who you are. Maybe we can just start with your background. I've been in the derivatives business for the last 15 years or so. I started in 2007 while I was doing my bachelor in economics. I always wanted to be in the banking business, and I thought, well, I should probably get some practical experience. Having very few opportunities in Israel in finance, like you have many opportunities in tech, but in finance, you don't really have anything. I decided to apply to a company named Super Derivatives. Super Derivatives, they are now part of Heist, like Intercontinental Exchange. But back then, they were a leading fintech company that specialized in derivatives prices. I applied to them and, well, I didn't know anything about derivatives and options back then. So I came to an interview and the guy who interviewed me started asking me questions about options, calls, puts, vol. And I was like, listen, I don't know anything about that. I'm eager to learn. I don't know anything right now. I think that I can get the hang of it if you give me the opportunity. So he hands me a book, which was John Hall's Futures, Options and Other Derivatives. 
and he tells me, just read that, you know, reschedule the interview. If you come and you know what you're talking about, then I'll hire you. So I took that, and I think that I read that cover to cover over a weekend. I was just completely fascinated and hooked on that. Obviously, he hired me, and for the next three, four months, the only thing that I did was just watching the generation of volatility surfaces. So I QA'd them, making sure that there aren't any funny numbers or anything, or that everything comes smoothly. And I also investigated client queries about pricing. They might come and say, well, why is my double knockout option price is like 5% of where, you know, my Bloomberg shows me or like 3%. And then I would just go and investigate that. So it gave me a lot of time to sit with the quants and the developers. And I just got completely fascinated and overwhelmed by derivatives and by derivative pricing. But I really felt that my quantitative background is not up to par. So I didn't have any foundations in quantitative disciplines. I was doing my economic degree, and you don't really get anything beyond Calculus 101 or Probability Theory 101. So I, I really needed to get some foundations in quantitative disciplines. So I thought, well, either I drop out of economic and start something like computer science or mathematics or physics, or I just learn everything by myself. I decided to take the latter, and I just started teaching myself all the quantitative background that I needed to know how to read and implement papers. I think that it took me almost a year until I could really implement a paper just after reading that. I was just so excited, and I think that I went through that rabbit hole of derivatives quite quickly. And then in 2008, a friend of my boss at Derivatives asked me whether I want to join him because he was a large PM that did local market fixed income in Israel, so for large propos in Tel Aviv, I was more than willing to join him. He asked me whether I want to be his FX quant guy. I was so into that. So I started in September 2008 as his quant. And then two weeks later, I saw Lehman going under, basically. So it was quite an interesting start to my trading career. And then for the next year and a half, I worked both at Superdurities and with this guy. So I think that I got the better of both worlds. And then 2010, I decided that I have had enough with pricing and options and everything, and I want to go full-time FX option trader. I went to that company and started running my own FX option book. And then a month after I joined, I saw the May flash crash of 2010. So again, super volatile markets. And I think that this formed the way I think about falls in a way. For the next nine years, I ran ethics option and later on rates options for that firm. And I was lucky enough to work with senior guys who were around the block for many years. And they really taught me the practical experience of trading those markets. Something that you can't really learn watching videos on YouTube or reading on, in textbooks. The thing that really make change for a trader. And then in 2019, I decided that I really want to expand to be cross-asset trader. I thought that this is what I want. And then I went to another prop firm. I joined them. And then I saw in March 2020 that not all vaults are made the same. You think that FX vault and equity vault are the same, but apparently they are really, really not the same. So it's comparing your Toyota to a Formula One car. The only thing that they have in common is that they have four wheels. That's it. Besides that, everything is completely different. And I learned that the hard way was pretty rough patch, but I think that I learned a lot about the blind spots of my portfolio, risk management, and I think that I took a lot from there. And then mid-2021, I decided that I kind of had enough with prop trading. I'm really passionate about hardcore derivatives research and modeling. So I decided that I'm going to stop prop trading and I'm going to focus on that. So I'm currently just researching derivatives and model volatility. So I'm definitely going to ask you to expand upon this concept that not all falls are the same. But before we go there, I want to start with just a basic understanding of the FX vol market. What is it? Why does it exist? 
who are the players and why are they operating in the market? We can grossly divide the FX market into the listed market, which is a fairly small segment of the FX market. And that market is on the CME and you have few CTAs there, but the volumes are not really meaningful. We constantly read that commitment of trade report and then they say, well, dollar uh, volumes or dollar positioning is to the roof. Everybody's long dollar, and that's partially true, but that's only because they are trend following. So if dollar moves higher, then it makes sense that their position will be maximum. But I wouldn't read too much into that, despite what people think. The part that's really moving the market is the OTC market. When you see that on Twitter, that not too many retail accounts really understand that market and know that market. And the reason is that the barriers of entry are pretty high. So to have an access to the FX4 market on the OTC market, you really need to have either an FX Prime brokerage account, which is quite expensive and it requires a lot of margin, or you need to have an ISDA master agreement. As a retail trader, you can't have either one of them unless you put a lot of margin, which retail traders don't have, basically. And I think that this market can be grossly divided into three groups. So the first group would be the sell side. And the sales side would have the dealers, like a large swap dealers, investment banks, second-tier banks. They have non-dealer market makers. So that's a small segment within that group. But I think it's a growing one because I just read that Optiver, which is a market maker across multiple assets, started to gain more traction and is currently showing prices on multi-dealer platforms. So I think that in that sense, it's a growing player in that segment. And then you have the interbank brokers like Tradition and GFI that basically just broker between dealers. So that would be the sell side. On the buy side, you have the corporate and the hedgers and the real money that basically come to that market just to hedge their ethics exposure their cash flows, and their long and short-term cross-currency funding needs. They provide most of the supply and demand to the market, and they are volume-sensitive. So in a way, they need to hedge whether or not vol is at 10, 15, or 20, because they have exposure and they need to hedge that away. They create a lot of those dislocations that you no know, vol managers try to offset or to outreach. Then the other group on the buy side would be the macro managers that take directional views on the FX market. They think the dollar yen is going to go to 150, 160. Then they will buy calls. They will do some structures to enjoy that move. And you have multi-managers who are trying to use FX as part of their own book. So they diversify into FX, either in vol or in other types of strategy. And the last subset of a speculative account would be the relative value or the FX bond managers. And they are kind of a secondary risk underwriter. So they will try to take advantage of this location created by the macro managers and by the corporates and the dealers don't want to warehouse that risk or don't have the capacity of just trying to take advantage of fall. And they are very sensitive to fall. So that would be the FX option market. So let's attack this idea head on that not all vol is the same. And maybe specifically talk about what makes FX vol so different from more traditional volatility markets, say like equity. I think that there are two main differences. One would be the sheer amount of quoting conventions. I don't think that people outside the FX market understand how many conventions, different conventions you have to quote vol in FX. So if you take the most trivial thing like six months at the money strike or at the money vol in whatever currency you want, no, you basically have three different strikes and vols that correspond to the six months at the money. And you don't have that in anywhere else. So if you ask for at the money vol from a dealer, you could either ask for at the money spot, which is the strike that corresponds to the current spot and vol. And then you have the FX at the money forward which is the strike that corresponds to the forward rate. So if you don't have any rate differential, that would be pretty much like spot. But if you have some chunky forward, like in Turkey, like South Africa, Brazil, then forward rate would be very different than the money spot. 
and therefore the money vol would be different than where you put the money spot. And then you have a third convention, which is, I don't think that you have anywhere else but effects, and that would be the delta neutral at the money. So just to give some listener some background, and I'm not going to go into that because quoting uh, premium conventions in effects is one topic that very few really know how to do that. So basically, when you quote premium of an option, that is essentially cash flow. So if you take that premium and incorporate that into the delta, that actually changes the delta. Now, because premium is highly sensitive to the volatility level, then when you have high vol, the delta neutral strike, which is completely different than what you are taught when you learn black shows, that 50 delta is the other money. So it basically makes the delta neutral strike completely off where you think the money forward is and where the money spot is. So again, at the money, three different conventions, and no one understands which one is which. And then if we go beyond that and we look at how strikes are quoted in effects, they are never quoted in fixed strikes. They are always quoted in delta strikes. You never ask your dealer for 5% out of the money option. You always ask for like a 25 delta put or call. And I think that this basically explains a lot about what we call the stickiness of a strike. In equity, we are used to the idea of sticky strikes, while in effects, we are used to what is called the sticky delta. Those are two completely different ways to look at spot vol dynamic. And then another thing that makes FX very different than equity would be the things that really drive that market. So if you think about equities, when you come to hedge your equity book, you come to hedge your wealth, your investment. But when you come to hedge in effects, you basically come to hedge either your liquidity or your funding. So that's really different in terms of dynamic. Now, in March 2020, we saw that vol went to the roof and then equity vol continued to be relatively high, whereas effects vol dropped very quickly. And the reason for that is because central bank monetary policy was pretty known, like rates were at zero, no, you had no rate differential, and then vols went to a very low level. Now, we see that rate differentials are starting to grow, and then people are uncertain about future rate path, and then they need to hedge because, you know, you can't leave your book unhedged. You can't leave your interest rate exposure unhedged, and you can't really be in a position where you don't really know where rates is going to go when your book is completely exposed. So I think those two main differences are what drive apart ethics for and equity for One of the things you learn when you sort of learn the textbook, Black-Scholes implied volatility surface on equities is all about the arbitrage boundaries for different parts of the surface. When I start to think about currencies, the first thing I think about, and I think the first thing many people are taught about is that textbook triangle arbitrage trade. In my head, when I take these two concepts and start to merge them together, I start to think about how the arbitrage bounds in FX probably creates something like an implied correlation triangle that all these surfaces have a relation to one another. They're never independent from one another, and they're sort of cross-surface arbitrage bounds. Curious how that multidimensional nature of FX presents both an opportunity and a risk in the volatility space. If you think about currencies, a currency doesn't have a value unless it's related to another currency. So euro doesn't have a value unless it's quoted in dollar terms. Or sterling doesn't have a value unless it's quoted in yen terms. So when you think about relative performance between two currency pairs, you really need to have a third currency, which is a common currency. Whenever you think about options and vol, you need to think about the triangle relationship. And then if you think about how we measure realized volatility, whether one currency outperforms another, we can basically think about many correlation triangles, whereas every correlation has three voles and three subset of correlations. So if we take G10 effects, we have 10 currencies in G10 that makes 45 currency pairs. So it's 10 times 9 divided by 2. Obviously, not every single currency pair in G10 effects out of those 45 is tradable in the market. So some currency pairs like, say, 
Ozzy versus Swedish Crone. No, it would not be super liquid. And most of the deals, I'm not going to quote you that option. But assuming that there is a liquid market to all those currency pairs, you basically have 360 coalition triangles. So you are in a multidimensional coalition world. So I think that it's very difficult for dealers to maintain those 360 coalition triangles aligned at any given point in time. There are so many opportunities there. But obviously, you know, if something has a very high correlation, so it's very close to one, no one would quote you correlation at one because dealers understand that obviously everybody wants to short correlation at one and buy correlation at minus one. So obviously, you know, there will be some skewed quote to that. But if you think about it, like dealers can't maintain those correlation triangles in line. So what they do usually, they usually widen prices on stuff that are illiquid. And on some stuff, they will not quote you. So mostly, if you trade correlation, you never want to go and do the traditional correlation trade, which is trading three vanilla trades or three bar swaps because it's too expensive. So as a correlation trader, what you always want to do, you want to trade some relative value between two currency pairs and basically what you want to own, some idiosyncratic risk. Because market risk, you can edge away and diversify away. But idiosyncratic risk is what you want to own, whereas something that has a high better risk you want to short if it has a low idiosyncratic risk. I want to talk before we get into maybe some strategy discussions. Again, the nature of this market that makes it unique. Part of it is that the vast majority of the volume is OTC. I want to know what it means to be a systematic trader in an OTC market. What are like the major challenges you face? Well, there are many challenges. The first challenge is the fact that dealers are not obligated to show prices. So they are operating on goodwill. They will show you prices whenever the market is calm and nothing happens and balls are low. But when things turn south, like we had in 08 and 2020, they will either widen the price significantly to a point where that's just not tradable, or they will just completely stop quoting. So when the S&B dropped the floor on the Euro-Swiss, most of the interbank platforms were just off. Like no one would show prices for 30 minutes to an hour. No one would show anything. And we saw that many times around Brexit, we saw the same behavior and around the US elections. Showing prices is kind of on a goodwill basis. Whereas if you go to listed market, there are market makers there that constantly show prices and usually tight prices. The other problem when you run systematic strategy or systematic effects is that you don't really know uh, positioning. Mostly because the fixed market is a very non-transparent market. So there is a problem for you to understand how positioning is in the market and you don't see anything. And I can just speak about later a thing that it's a huge issue in options. If you are trying to run systematic, which means that fully automated strategies, it's very difficult in effects, mostly because you need to have some hefty investment in infrastructure. You need to have uh, reliable sources for vol, for forwards, for anything. If you look at something like vols or forwards, your data source can change all of a sudden, and then your delta starts to change and your entire book starts to change. And if you have an automated execution system, that can really be problematic for you as systematic effects. And then it's a market that operates a little over 24-5, if we think about it. You need to have it constantly monitored. There are so many things that happen within three trading sessions between Asia to New York. You have many hours that liquidity is just bad. So if you think about what's called the witching hour between New York and Tokyo, so many times you saw that price action there was just completely erratic. I think that I saw the dollar-yen collapsing at least three times during that witching hour, the twilight between New York and Tokyo. That's crazy, you know, if you run a position and all of a sudden you wake up in the morning and you see that you just lost or made like five, six million dollars just because dollar-yen moved. If you operate in the OTC market, there is a huge operational risk, settlement risk that you don't think about when you do stuff on the listed market. And then you have trade reconciliation and confirmation and settlement of trade. Most of the risks that we don't think about when you trade equities or listed stuff. 
You mentioned it briefly, but I wanted to draw it out a little bit more. In these OTC markets, it's not necessarily just a lack of transparency on price, but also a lack of information about market positioning and flow, potentially. And I'm curious about how you deal with data issues there, understanding what the market landscape looks like. For many years, I thought, well, positioning doesn't matter. It's just my positions that I need to worry about. Everything is pretty much priced in the market. But I think since I started reading Twitter and understanding like gamma exposure and dealer's positioning, I started really getting into that position and stuff. And up until a few years ago, you couldn't really understand the market positioning because you wouldn't have regulation like Dodd-Frank and Emmer that requires trade reporting by corporates or by banks. So nowadays, regulation that requires you to report trades, but the problem is that they show very little. They reveal very little about the trade side, like what side was the client side or anything beyond that. Unless you are willing to do the footwork and build an algorithm or a model that understands the positioning, you are pretty much in the dark. And I think that investing in that positioning report or models that do that that understand the positioning from the raw data is extremely valuable in a sense. For now, most of the ethics option traders rely on their liquidity providers, the dealers, just to tell them, listen, a macro fund bought some top side in whatever currency they did, and then they will come and say, well, a relative value traded that and that structure. So they, they will not reveal the names of those funds, but they will probably tell you, listen, macro just buying a lot of top side. It's also a good thing that you know that. Along that same theme, when I think about less transparent markets, I tend to think about information asymmetry. And more specifically, information asymmetry can lead to highly adversarial markets and adversarial risks. I'm curious on your take, do you find with these types of OTC markets, especially versus say listed traditional markets, that adversarial risk is much higher and something you have to actively consider and try to minimize in your portfolio? I don't think that risk is greater in effects and OTC market than in the equity market. If you are a retail trader that watches the market, what information do you have that reduces that risk? I think that everybody's in the same boat in terms of like the information that they get. So again, unless you have some sophisticated model, you still have some lack of transparency and you don't really know the positioning. I think that if you run a systematic strategy that systematically made money, the only thing that you need to worry about is your risk limits because you might get some significant move, market is going to move, and your model is going to scream. You need to increase that position because market goes against you. So you want to basically average the trade and you want to sell more or to buy more. But as long as you maintain your risk limit, the only thing that can get damaged is your mark-to-market. If this trade systematically made money, then yeah, I don't think that you really need to worry about information asymmetry or anything like that. If I had a good information about what's driving the market, I would be able to squeeze more alpha. But that said, I'm more worried about having my risk limits intact, so I'm not going to get stopped should this move continue. So given you operate in these OTC markets, it is possible for you to have completely tailor-made positions. How does that opportunity affect strategy design? I think that one good thing about the FX OTC market is that you can basically tailor yourself a very, very distilled exposure. If you want to be exposed to like the third order derivative to the butterfly, you can do that. If you really want to do that, I don't know why anyone would want to do that. But if you want to be exposed to that, you can basically do that. So I think it allows a lot of creativity. You can go wild with how to structure a trade. I think then that's great. And I think that the fact that you are not bounded by strikes and maturities allow you to be very, very flexible on how you structure your portfolio. And I know that corporates really love to buy those exotics, those first and second generation exotics, they say that it cheapens their exposure, 
their hedges. You know, I think that they just like to play with exotics and barriers and triggers. I know that they do that a lot. And I recently read that macro managers made a killing on just buying those dollar CNH RKOs. That's basically just buying a call and selling a barrier, usually around 4 to 5% out of the money. So it cheapens their exposure because as they get into the money, their barrier gets closer. They become essentially short gamma, although they don't really run the gamma, but it cheapens their exposure. Being able to tailor your exposure is great in effect. One of the biggest stories over the last 20 years, I can talk about it later in length, because I think that that's amazing, was the Japanese yen and what is called the Euro Dashi's bonds. Those were like the first structures that were sold to retail investors. And I think that they made a huge difference on how world dynamic is priced in currencies like dollar yen. Well, why don't we dive into that right now and maybe talk about some of the things you've seen in your career that have impacted these markets and how the landscape has evolved. If we think about the vol dynamic, like in dollar yen, a friend of mine said that the graveyards in the market are full with people who sold vol when dollar yen vol was at 30, but it's also full with people who bought vol when it was low single digit. So dollar yen is a very strange animal that no one understands, but people keep on trading that. The story is that since the 1990s, interest rate in Japan was zero. So Japan was the first market to have a zero interest rate. And I think 30 years interest rate back then was zero. And I don't think that they got it wrong. Interest rate is still zero in Japan. So having no interest rate to gain, retail investors basically couldn't get some yield out of government bonds. So local dealers basically offered them yen-denominated bonds, but that provided yield from foreign currencies like Australia, the US dollar. So those were basically just carry trades packaged into bonds. So, you know, long-term, like 20, 30 years, cross-currency swaps that were packaged into a bond and that they had some optionality that dealers called that option. I think after two years, they could call that option, you know, if dollar yen, Aussie yen spot moved higher. So those products, they are called PRDC, that stands for Powell Reverse Dual Currency Note. They were very popular in the early 2000s. They were started being issued in 2000, and then they gained so much popularity because dollar yen only moved higher. So dealers would reissue and issue and issue, and they had huge issuances back then. And then in 07, markets started to go down. So again, it started to appreciate. But the problem was that dealers effectively were short downside strikes. And they did not hedge that. As yen appreciated, dealers got into a short gamma position. And apparently, and no one thought about it, they actually got into a short gamma correlation and vol of fall. And apparently, at the end of the day, they got some basis risk between short-term volatility and forward and long-term volatility and forward. Long story short, they just got hammered completely. You know, if you like those kind of stories, just Google PR decision and you find so many papers and articles about how to get F in being a dealer on those markets. And apparently, those products actually starting to make comeback nowadays. So I just read a week ago that issuances of PRDCs are going to the roof and everybody's piling on because dollar yen is moving higher and no one remembers that in 08, people was just getting killed there. And we got to a point actually in 08 that the vol surface in dollar yen just got completely broken. We are taught that butterflies can't go negative, but apparently when everybody's buying the money, they're going to sell downside puts and calls, so they turned the butterfly to be negative and broke the vol surface model there. So fun times, I would say. It sounds like there is opportunity from structural flow pressure, from people looking to indiscriminately hedge their cash flow or their liquidity. Maybe we can take a step back, not talk about market dynamics as much, but maybe talk about your approach to the market. How are you trying to find an edge and what do you think the nature of that edge is? I would say that I define my strategy or my approach as a 
quantitative base with a discretionary overlay. I used to be fully quantitative. And then, you know, I saw that market sometimes doesn't make sense. And you're told to sell vol on currencies that are managed if something breaks like the Euro-Swiss flow. So I try to maintain some discretionary. But I think that most of my hedge comes from the fact that I understand the market players and how dealers run their exposure. If you need to be on a trading desk to understand that dealers run their books in a certain way that prevents them from finding those small edges that I find because I used to trade mostly niche markets. So I like to be a big fish in a small pond rather than a small fish in a big pond. If you become an expert in those markets, it's very difficult for dealers to beat you or to take the alpha away from you. Now, if you think like what we saw with Zillow, that they tried to beat the market with their house flipping business and they lost money. And that's because someone who's expert in a niche market most times will just beat you. When you talk to quantitative traders in highly liquid markets, they often talk about this red queen principle that they have to keep innovating and researching just to stay in place, just to stay equally competitive with their peers. Do you find the same in sort of the less liquid OTC market? Yes and no, because some markets got more sophisticated over the years. So dealers finally began to understand they misprice some of the vol. So they miss some of the dynamic. They don't see that. So gradually, vols moved higher. So whenever you bought vol, and I bought vol in some currency pairs in the low single digits, and now they're priced almost in a double digit. And that's only because they started seeing that they slowly bleeding alpha because no one was doing that before I did that. But as they started seeing that they're bleeding alpha, they kind of skewed the prices higher. So effectively, I improved the market. So now I need to find new edges and find new places and new ways to find the edge in those markets. So I think trying to find that edge is very difficult, especially as dealers get more sophisticated and players get more sophisticated. Where do FX vol traders tend to get in trouble? What makes them blow up? There are many ways to blow up in FX, like any other market. But I think that there are three main reasons that someone can get into trouble trading effects. The first problem that someone can encounter is just not knowing the market enough, not having a good understanding of the market. And that would be, if you look at a strategy in the currency which is managed, like Swiss franc, for example, like Hong Kong dollar, I know so many people who got completely crashed in 2015. But if you had bought a one-month straddle since that's and being introduced to PEG, I think in 2012 or 2011, you would have lost 20% of your AUM just buying options and rolling that, waiting for that S&B to drop the peg. So everybody's trying to pull a source like it's 1992, but it's very rare that you can do that. People have been talking about the Hong Kong dollar, which needs to either get appreciated massively or appreciated massively. And for 40 years, it has been trading between 775 and 785. So Nothing happened there. So trying to run a strategy that bets that something will change is very difficult. So you might not blow up and go up in flame, but you will just bleed slowly but surely. And another thing that people don't understand about markets and then they try to run position is that they don't understand liquidity and funding. So that's mostly true when you run position in emerging market. Short-term funding is being controlled by central bank. And if markets like Turkey, for example, which is just getting completely broken, the central bank decides that it wants to appreciate the lira, they will just drain the market from liquidity and you will end up being on the right side of the trade, but you will lose a lot of money just because you don't understand the dynamic. And the problem for those markets is that when everybody wants to go to the exit, the door becomes extremely small and you can't get out of those trades, basically. So that would be the first reason that someone can get into trouble trading effects. The second reason would be you just don't understand the products well. One product that used to be extremely, extremely popular and banks used to offer that in massive amounts would be correlation swaps. 
in early 2000s and even after that, they would go and sell those correlation swaps. So correlation swap basically gives you an exposure to the realized correlation versus a fixed strike. So just think about variance swap, but with correlation, which is basically just three variance swaps on steroids. You would think that correlation can go wherever it can go, but people didn't understand that this is a fixing-based structure. So you're bounded by the fixing. So it doesn't really matter where the intraday correlation is. You were really bounded by the way that the fixing will correlate it, which is completely different, especially in the rigged market of prior to 2012, where they actually prosecute people for rigging the WMRs. But the other thing that people didn't really understand is that those were highly convex structures. So the sensitivity correlation was not linear across all correlation levels. And people just got completely killed trading them. Although they were all right on the direction, they were just completely killed because they didn't understand the product. And I think that the last reason that someone would get into trouble was just not factoring in fat tails in geopolitical events. In 2016, we actually saw that twice within four to five months that before Brexit, no one really factored in like a five or six standard deviations moves in the market in Sterling, and they actually got that. And then everybody said, well, Clinton is going to win the elections. There isn't any event to be priced. And then they got Donald Trump, and then the market got completely crazy. So I think not factoring in enough fat tails to geopolitical events is very problematic for the trade effects. Well, I wanted to talk about the underlying next. I think there are many things about FX that make it unique as an underlying. But to tie to your last point, FX is an asset class that one would presume is very sensitive to geopolitical event risk, as well as the release of global economic data. I'd love to know how you think about accounting that massive calendar of events of knowns and unknowns into the risk modeling that you have to do in your portfolio. I think that any trader who trades effects will has some way to factor in event weights. Because when you look at the calendar, we have so many events. So first of all, you need to decide which event is actually worth looking and worth pricing and which one is not worth looking at pricing. Over the years, I kind of developed a way to estimate the event weights, how to calculate the season, the one-day seasonality for each event. I think 10 years ago, dealers would grossly underprice events, especially in niche markets. The easiest thing to do would be just go and buy overnight falls in those markets because dealers wouldn't price any event. And then you would get Dalby and ZI King like, or cutting 50 basis points, you'd get 2% world market price, maybe a percent move. So that was quite easy, but nowadays it becomes more difficult. So I think nowadays dealers are pretty much pricing correct weights to major events like FOMCs, CPIs, payrolls. They're mostly accurately priced, so you can basically back the implied event weight from the one day forward for between the date of the event and the day before. And I did some research about that. You couldn't make money trading those events during the last two, three years because events just became meaningless. When monetary policy is zero, events don't matter, actually. Only now, when you start seeing those divergence in monetary policies, you start to see those events become more meaningful. Actually, PMI and ISMs became far more important over the last three to four months than the entire 10 years up until now. That's the most problematic thing to value is geopolitical events, those events that are not frequent and you don't really get recurring events like elections, like wars. Something that is not on the calendar is all of a sudden in the calendar and you don't really know what to price that. So historically, I think that trading those geopolitical events doesn't produce a good alpha, mostly because it's a dose of a coin. So either the market overprices tails or overprices fall, or it's not pricing tails correctly. And you can't really know that. And there is only one event, so you can't really analyze that in a way. When I think about FX markets, one of the other things I think about is how the different pairs may have different economic sensitivities or may actually be influenced by dramatically different players, whether it's central banks or those who are generating cash flow in a given economy. For example, the US dollar might 
serve as a flight to safety asset, whereas the Aussie dollar, the Canadian dollar, or the Kiwi might be more sensitive to what's happening in the commodity space. How does this show up in volatility surface dynamics? And again, how does it affect the way you think about portfolio construction? You can divide the different currencies in the market to high-yielding currencies, which have high beta to risk and to commodities. And in G10, those would be the Aussie, the Kiwi, the Canadian dollar, the Norwegian krone. Those would be the high-yielding currencies. And so they are highly sensitive to equities and to China and commodities. And then on the other end, you have the dollar, the Swiss, the yen, now also the euro because it's a low-yielding currency. And then they would be the fly-to-safety currency. So obviously, when you have something that performs well, when things turn south, it would price as a call-over put. So calls on dollar, calls on yen, calls on Swiss would be priced higher than puts on that. On the other hand, if you have something that sells off when equity moves down, puts would be priced at premium. So if you look at something like ASEAN, the skew there is massively negative because it would get a double whammy effect. So everybody would buy in and everybody would sell Aussie. And we saw again, like in 2020, 2022, that it can really move. So people actually use that as a proxy on equity, whereas like in most days, it's not proxy on equity, but when things turn south, it really becomes a proxy on equity. And I think we talked about the fact that yen is actually quite complicated vol dynamics. So short-term yen vol and riskies are being determined by supply and demand, by macro names, by hedge funds, but long-term vol and skew and convexity was just supply and demand by pension funds and those banks that issue some yield enhancers. As you're looking to continuously innovate, where do new research ideas come from? I think like 15 years ago and 10 years ago, I would say, well, I read a lot of Wilmot Forum and nuclear finance. If you know those forums, you're probably too old. Nuclear finance is one of the best kept secrets. If anyone's made it this far into the season in this podcast, there's some real gems on the old nuclear finance forum. I really like Risk Latte. And every once in a while, I go into Wilmot just to see that the last thread was from 2020 and no one posts there. I used to read a lot research by banks, quant research, but like Citibank, Deutsche Bank, Goldman, they used to have this amazing quant research nodes. They stopped producing those. So nowadays, I don't really read research nodes or research ideas by banks, and I mostly read Twitter, Medium, and I listen to podcasts. Given the lack of transparency and maybe the lack of obvious pricing data in this universe, how do you actually go about testing new ideas? What assumptions do you need to make about entry and exit liquidity, for example? I think that the problem for me when backtesting strategies the fact that I don't know the nature of the data. I assume that the data that I use is good, but most often than not, it's not good. I think like a month ago, I backtested a strategy and I said, well, that's amazing. And I tried to backtest a strategy that actually bought wings. And I thought that it will just lose a lot of money over the years. And apparently it made money. I was like, okay, something is not right here. You can't buy wings in a highly convex currency pairs and make money. So something is not right. So I dug into the data and apparently at some point, just the vol base was divided by 100. So effectively, instead of just buying at 16 vol, it bought at 0.16. So obviously it would make money when the market moves. Besides the obvious, which is just double check your prices every single time that you run a strategy. And if it doesn't make sense, just dig into the data and find what's wrong. I think that a lot of time, I just penalize my model by getting bad prices. So I just factor in normal, bad, and horrific entry and exit points. Because I don't know whether you know, you're going to make money or you're going to lose money. You don't know whether you're going to exit the market when you know everything is in chaos and you can't really get out. That's especially true when you backtest strategies that are highly correlated to the market vol. If you buy something which is effectively by convexity, and you want to take profit, 
if that strategy is in profit, it kind of makes sense to assume that the market is going high wire. So you need to assume that BDAS prices are wider than normal. That's how I go about setting my transaction costs. Well, that's an argument I often hear from people on the tail hedging side who eschew using exotics, especially OTC, because they say when those exotics really hit and that convexity really kicks in, the market will be in chaos and your ability to exit the exotic, not just from a potential counterparty default risk, but actually getting a good market on that exotic could be really difficult. It sounds like, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but the answer for you is recognizing proactively that is likely the case and that you need to adjust prices. Is that right? It's completely true. And I think back in a way, we ran some exposure and we had forward vote agreements, so FDAs. And obviously in dollar yen, that made a killing. But the problem was that besides the fact that two of our counterparties almost defaulted, you couldn't get out of trade where you thought the TV is. So when market is in chaos, any price makes sense, basically. You can't really assume that if the old model shows you that you should have exited the trade at 20 volt, you might be exiting the trade at 15 volt because market is 10 volt wide. The last question I'm asking everyone this season is to reflect back on their career and answer for me, what was the luckiest break you had? I'm going to say that first time that I went into Twitter was after I listened to your podcast with Ben Eifern. So a friend of mine said, well, you should like listening to Corey Austin and Ben Eifern podcast because it's a great podcast. And I loved it so much. And I said, well, let's give this Twitter a go. So I think that was my luckiest break because I found so many people that I was just blown away by the amount of knowledge people are willing to share and collaborate. And the only thing that I was looking my entire career, because as a prop trader, especially in Israel, that don't have really a community of prop traders and traders at all, and no one does what I do, I can assure you that. I never had this collaboration and brainstorming with anyone. So I found Twitter and I found so many people that really helped me get better understanding of the market and improved my alpha, my modeling. So I think that would be my luckiest break in my career. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been incredibly educational for me. And I certainly look forward to diving into these markets further in the future. Thank you. Thank you.